What this question doesn't address is how God made these things, which reveals a lot about his character. According to Genesis chapter 1, he made these things by the power of his voice. He spoke and things happened. And this tells you how powerful God is, creating the material world with his voice. Welcome to the Fox Den with Terry Fox. Greetings, everyone. And welcome to the Fox Den. I'm a bit behind on my episodes because I changed plans after recording an episode for an upcoming study. As I was editing that episode, I came up with another idea and wanted to post that before I began my study on the larger catechism. When I shared that idea with my wife, she suggested that I review the first catechism. The first catechism is really a children's catechism, and my wife thought it would be helpful for young parents to listen to these episodes so they could take their kids through the first catechism. Now, unless you're a child or a parent of a young child, you may feel like this study isn't for you. However, I recommend the first catechism to adults who are fairly new to the Christian faith to give them a basic overview of Christian doctrine. And then after this, I recommend the Westminster Shorter Catechism, Belgic Confession, or the Heidelberg Catechism as follow-on. Also, I'll take time to elaborate on these questions in order to dig deeper, so I think it will be worth your time. So I hope you hang in there with me and find this helpful. And with that out of the way, let's begin. The first question asks, who made you? And it answers by simply saying, God. The first thing we have to see in this answer is the existence of God. He's the starting point. Man's not eternal, which means he's a creature. He has a beginning. So there must be someone who caused the beginning, meaning someone created you. And that someone is God. Your existence and the existence of the material world is proof that there is a God. Furthermore, if God created you, then you're not God. And this is actually a very important point to grasp. The heart of man is set against God. Man hates God and wants to dethrone him. Man wants to control everything, his own life, others, and even God. He doesn't want to be subject to anyone, and he will fight against God's created order. Just watch what's happening in the Western world. And this stems from the fall in Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent tempted Eve with becoming like God. Therefore, since the fall, mankind hates God and seeks to rule in his place. Again, you see this today with the many sins of our culture. The refusal to submit to God's created order is a sign of man's hatred toward God. However, man is simply a creature, and he's not God himself. His efforts to dethrone God is useless. Let's move on to the next question. What else did God make? And it answers by saying God made all things. We see this most clearly in Genesis chapter 1. God created light, the sun, moon, stars, plants, animals, What this question doesn't address is how God made these things, which reveals a lot about his character. According to Genesis chapter 1, he made these things by the power of his voice. He spoke and things happened. And this tells you how powerful God is, creating the material world with his voice. Now I'm going to remind you here that you're not God. You might be able to create something out of the material world. You might be able to take some clay and make a pot. You might be able to put some metal together and build a bridge, but none of you can create anything by your voice. 
And not only did God create, he brought it into existence with his voice. So you can create with existing material, but by your voice, you can't create something out of nothing. God did. So by the power of his voice, God created all things. However, these are the things that we can see, touch, hear, taste. But there's a spiritual world that we can't see. There are angels and demons. Even Satan was created by God. And this is an important point to understand. Satan is not a co-equal with God. He's a creature. The cosmic battle between God and Satan is not a battle of equals. It's a creature against his creator. Who do you think is going to win? By the way, did you know that Satan can't do anything apart from the permission of God? We see this play out in the story of Job. Satan wreaks havoc in Job's life, but only within the parameters God sets. First, he takes everything away from Job, including his children. But that was the parameter that God set. He told Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. He says that in Job chapter 1, verse 12. So Satan took everything from Job, but he didn't touch Job. He worked within the parameters that God set. Only later did Satan inflict bodily harm on Job. But again, he worked within the parameters that God set. In Job chapter 2, verse 6, God said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan inflicted painful physical ailments upon Job, but he didn't kill him. Again, working within the parameters that God set. In other words, Satan submitted to God's authority. Now, don't think that Satan is a good guy because he obeyed God. He's not. Jesus calls him a murderer and a liar in John chapter 8, verse 44. However, like you and me, he's limited by the sovereignty of God. He's a creature. He's not God, nor is he a co-equal with God. Now, there's one more thing I want to point out in the story of Job. The tragedy in Job's life was under the direction, not mere permission, of God. God is the one who gave Job over to Satan and set the parameters. Do you think that God believed Satan was going to deal kindly with Job? He knew what Satan was going to do. The chaos Satan brought upon Job was under the direction of God, not mere permission. That means that anything that Satan brings upon you is within the sovereign plan of God. And this is the hard part to believe at times. Those tragedies that Satan brings upon you work together for your good. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Even the horrible things that Satan brings upon you falls within the sovereign plan of God and works together for your good. What that really means is that Satan is a tool of God. As he works to destroy God's plan of redemption, He's fulfilling the plan of God. He can do nothing to thwart the plan of God. He only forwards it. In fact, he's already lost the cosmic battle with God. God is God. Satan is not. And with that in mind, God created all things by the power of his voice, including you, me, your pets, the sun, moon, stars, angels, and even Satan. Let's move on to the next question. Why did God make you and all things? And it answers by saying, for his own glory. Now, first, let me provide a simple 
definition of glory. It basically refers to God's greatness and awesomeness. So God made you and all things to show you how great and awesome he is. Now, this answer sounds arrogant. For example, if I made something for my own glory, you would probably think I was full of myself. And you would be right. It's incredibly arrogant and pompous and selfish for me to make things to show you how great and awesome I am. However, I want to make it clear that God making all things for his own glory isn't arrogant. God isn't sinful like you and me. So his intentions are selfless, not selfish. His intentions are loving. You see, he's good, right, holy, and just. And his intentions are pure. They're not evil like ours. Now, though I agree that God made all things for his own glory, I'd add that God made all these things because it pleased him to do so. And then finally, God made man for love, communion, friendship. At this point, I think question one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism would be helpful. It asks, what is the chief end of man? And it answers by saying man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That last part is so important because it's often missed. We're told that we need to glorify God, which is true. But we very seldom hear you're to enjoy him forever. That means in this life and the one to come. You see, God didn't create slaves. He didn't create you to serve him. He created you to enjoy him in friendship, and it pleased him to do so. On to the next question. How can you glorify God? And it answers by saying, by loving him and doing what he commands. The first thing I want to point out here is what the question is asking. It doesn't ask, how do you glorify God, but how can you glorify God? I think this is an important distinction because God's glory is not dependent on what you do. However, your attitude and behavior points to God and his awesomeness when your attitude is love and your behavior is obedience. Next, there are obviously two parts to this question, but they're really connected. For example, if you don't obey God, doing what he commands, you clearly don't love him. However, the key to glorifying God according to this answer is loving him. You can't glorify him if you don't love him. And when you love him, you acknowledge that he exists and that he's great and awesome. Again, keep in mind, God's glory is not dependent on you. You can't really glorify God because his glory is based on who he is, not what you do. It's glorifying to God when you love him because your love points to God and his awesomeness. But you don't bring him glory. His glory is the result of his character. And his glory is independent from you. Now, it's also important to know that none of us will love God perfectly in this life and therefore fail to glorify him. We're still part of this sinful world inclined to our own sinful nature. As I've told my daughters, your heart will always be drawn to the world, not to God, because in this life you're pulled by your own sinful heart. Even as a Christian of 40 years and an ordained minister, my heart is drawn to the world. And this will be the case till I die. None of us love God perfectly in this life. Another thing to point out here is that this answer isn't exhaustive. And that's no big deal. After all, this is a children's catechism. But it's important to mention that loving others is an important part of glorifying God. Why? Well, because God commands us to love one another. 
Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40, that the summary of the law is to love God and to love one another. So loving others is very much connected to loving God because it's an act of obedience. And furthermore, loving one another is an act of loving God. For example, why should I love my wife? Well, you could answer because she's super awesome or because I made a promise in my wedding vows. And though that's true, both of these things are true, they're not the main reason. I should love my wife because I love God, and I love him because he first loved me. So loving God and obeying him are ways that we point to his glory. Next question, why are you to glorify God? And it answers by saying, because he made me and takes care of me. I kind of just made this point at the end of the previous question. But we love and obey God because he created us to commune with him and he loved us. And though we sinned against him, he did the work of salvation to bring us back into the fold. He did all the work of salvation. He implemented a plan to redeem us. Jesus came and lived a perfect life for us. He died the death that we deserve, and he rose from the dead on our behalf. The Holy Spirit made us alive with Christ and gave us the faith to hold firm to the work of Christ. God did this work in spite of our hatred toward him because he loved us and wanted to reconcile us to himself for friendship. Therefore, our love and obedience to God should be based on this and not fear. We shouldn't be afraid that we'll lose our salvation if we don't obey God. If God did all the work to save us when we hated him, is he going to kick us out of the kingdom when we disobey him? Especially since we can't obey him perfectly. Of course not. So we don't love and obey God out of fear. We love and obey God because he loved us and extended his grace to us. Our love and obedience is a response to his kindness toward us. It's an act of gratitude a way to say thank you to God for what he has done for us. So we're to glorify God because he's been so gracious to us. Now the questions shift to define God. Next question asks, is there more than one true God? And it answers by saying, no, there is only one true God. The question is emphasizing one true God, which obviously acknowledges many false gods. The Israelites in the Old Testament got in trouble with God because they fashioned and worshipped these false gods. In fact, God mocked them for these false gods. In Isaiah 44, verses 14 to 17, he says that man uses half the wood to warm himself and to cook his food, then the other half he turns into a god. And then he bows down to that god to save him. Do you see how stupid man is? He creates a god, then calls on that god to save him. This is opposite of the one true God. He creates and is to be worshipped by his creatures. Man creates and worships that which he created. This is backwards. The creator doesn't worship his creatures. The one true God is worshipped by his creatures because he's greater than they are. Now, don't think that only the Old Testament people created and worshipped false gods. There are plenty of false gods in our culture. We treat celebrities and athletes as gods. Why do people fawn over these idols? They're just as human as you and me and can do nothing to save us. We may not craft them out of wood or metal, but we worship them nonetheless. Furthermore, things like money, career, retirement, investments can be false gods as well. 
We often give our hearts to these things, trusting them over God. And at the end of the day, however, these false gods can do nothing for us. Only the one true God can redeem us, meet our needs, bring satisfaction. And there is no other true God. The next question asks, in how many persons does this one God exist? And it answers by saying, in three persons. Now, this is a very important point in the Christian faith. In fact, this distinguishes between true Christian groups and false groups that claim to be Christian. There is one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here are the key phrases, one God existing in three persons. There aren't many gods, and this one God doesn't exist in one person. This one true God exists in three persons. Furthermore, person is critical to this definition, which we'll see in a moment. The answer to this question is defining the doctrine known as the Trinity. Again, there is one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, it's true that the term Trinity is nowhere to be found in the Bible. It's a term that was created to communicate what we find in the Bible. However, even though you don't find the term Trinity in the Bible, that doesn't mean that the Trinity doesn't exist. And though this isn't an exhaustive study on the Trinity, there are many places we can go in the Bible to prove the Trinity exists. In fact, we see each person of the Trinity most clearly at the baptism of Jesus in Mark chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 3. Jesus comes up from the water, the Father speaks from heaven, and the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. So the Trinity is a biblical concept accepted by Christianity going all the way back to the early church. The Apostles' Creed addresses the Trinity, and it was written about 341 AD. However, not all groups that claim to be Christian accept this teaching of historic Christianity. For example, Mormons don't hold to Trinitarian theology, so they cannot be classified as Christian. In fact, not only are they non-Trinitarian, they're polytheistic, which means they believe in many gods. For example, they believe that Jesus is a god, but not the god. Historic Christianity, however, teaches that Jesus is a person of the one true God. Furthermore, there are authors that you will likely find in Christian bookstores who are not really Christian according to their view of the Trinity. I won't mention this individual by name, but one prolific writer claims there is one God eternally existing in three manifestations, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, at first glance, this sounds correct. But when you look closer, you're missing a key term, and it's actually an ancient heresy known as modalism. Modalism taught that there was one God and one person, but shows himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, this current prolific ministry uses the term manifestations, not persons. And what's sneaky about this ministry is they changed their definition. Several years ago, it simply said that there was one God who manifests himself in three ways. So, it seems they felt the pressure and changed their definition, but they still don't use the term persons. Now, why am I pressing this issue so much? Well, first, the doctrine of the Trinity is a key Christian doctrine and can be used to determine if a group is actually Christian. Also, I want to point out how sneaky this can be. What may sound theologically correct can actually be incorrect. And this is a call to be watchful of the people you listen to, which includes me. 
the bottom line of this point is that there is one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The next question asks, name these three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We've already touched on this, so I'll move on to the next question. It asks, what is God? And it answers by saying, God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. I've always found this question odd. The Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechisms ask the same question. They don't ask who is God, but what is God as if he's a thing? However, I think they ask this question this way to establish a proper framework of God. For example, God exists in three persons. He's not like us, which we'll see more clearly as we review the next several questions. The first thing to establish from this question is that God is a spirit and doesn't have a material body like ours. And this was true until Jesus Christ was born. Jesus is God, and he was born of the Virgin Mary, meaning he is also a man. However, this question focuses on God in his eternal form, a spirit without a body. Now, at this point, I'm going to review the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question four, and it asks, what is God? And it answers by saying God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. This answer reiterates what the children's catechism mentioned. God is a spirit. However, it further defines God. Now, the way to understand this question is to connect each of the first three adjectives with the last seven nouns. For example, God is infinite in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Now, what does infinite mean? Well, basically, it means without limit or immeasurable. Therefore, God is without limit in his being. He's without limit in his wisdom. He's without limit in his power. He's without limit in his holiness. He's without limit in his justice. He's without limit in his goodness. He's without limit in his truth. And you can say the same thing about eternal and unchangeable. Eternal means not limited by time. Therefore, God has no beginning and no end. He has always existed and always will. So he's eternal in his being. He's eternal in his wisdom. He's eternal in his power. He's eternal in his holiness. He's eternal in his justice. He's eternal in his goodness. He's eternal in his truth. And then finally, God is unchangeable. He doesn't change. So he's unchangeable in his being. He's unchangeable in his wisdom. He's unchangeable in his power. He's unchangeable in his holiness. He's unchangeable in his justice. He's unchangeable in his goodness. He's unchangeable in his truth. You see, man is nothing like God. Man is finite. God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. The next question asks, where is God? And it answers by saying God is everywhere. Now, the question is self-explanatory, and it's really connected with the last question. God is infinite and eternal, so he's not limited by time and space. And therefore, he can be everywhere at once. However, let me make an additional point. Though God is everywhere, he's not everything. Pantheism basically teaches that everything is God. Christianity is not pantheistic. It teaches that God is everywhere, but not everything is God. On to the next question. Can you see God? It answers by saying, no, I cannot see God, but he always sees me. Again, this is true concerning God's eternal nature, or he's a spirit. 
But when Jesus was born, God became a man. So Mary saw God in human form in the baby Jesus. The disciples saw God when Jesus walked with them and he ate with them. In fact, John points us out in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 say, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it. We testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So Mary and many of the New Testament believers could say that they saw God, but that's only because God became a man in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, Jesus is still a man. He ascended to heaven as a man in Acts chapter 1, and he's going to return as a man. So we can't see God today because his eternal nature is spirit, and the God-man Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of God. However, when he returns, we will see him with our own eyes. On to the next question. Does God know all things? And it answers by saying, yes, nothing can be hidden from God. First, though the catechism answer to what is God does not say he is infinite in his knowledge, he is. Second, this reminds us that God sees all that we do. When we sin in secret, God sees it. We can hide nothing from him. Now, I don't say this to evoke fear. We're saved by grace through faith, not by works. And we're not unsaved because of our sin. I'm merely pointing out that nothing can be hidden from God, even if we think we can hide our sin. Now, I don't think there's much more to add here, so let me move on to the next question. Can God do all things? And it answers by saying, yes, God can do all his holy will. This is actually a tricky question, and I think the answer here is very good. Long ago, I was talking to a fellow seminary student, and I asked her if God can do everything, and she said yes. And I told her that I think there's some things that God can't do, and she was flabbergasted at my statement because she basically thought I was saying God was finite, that he was limited. But that's not what I was saying. So I asked her, can God sin? And she said, no. So God can't do everything. Or there are certain things that God cannot do. Now, the answer to this catechism question assumes the same thing. There are things that God can't do like sin. He can't do anything outside of his nature. However, he's not limited in doing all his holy will. So he can do all of those things within his eternal nature. Now, I think that's enough for now. So I'll end this episode here. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for part two. That concludes this episode. If you have any questions, please email me at terry at thefoxdenjournal.com. If you enjoy The Fox Den, please leave a positive review and share this podcast with others. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe. The Fox Den is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Thanks for listening. And remember, faith comes by hearing.